Uh, Acts chapter 5, if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, we're going to continue our series through Acts. We're calling this series The History of Our Witness. So we're looking back on who we've always been to gain wisdom on who we are now uh, as God's people in the world. And so far, what we've seen in the story is that Jesus has actually bestowed an identity on the church, right? He's said, you are my witnesses. Not something you um, have to do. It's actually something you are, right? And so being a witness is actually, we talked about it's on a sliding scale of accuracy. We're either inaccurate witnesses or we're accurate witnesses, faithful representations of Jesus in our world. And so he says, this is actually your identity. You are my witnesses. And then he gives power, right? He sends the Spirit, the Spirit of God, to indwell and take up residence among his people, to empower us as witnesses. And so we see that story unfold as Jesus bestows identity and power, and then the people embark, actually, on that mission of bearing witness to Jesus in the world. And we've seen people restored, and we're also seeing in the story that there's resistance. There's resistance to the gospel. There's resistance to the identity of Jesus and his witnesses. And and yet, at the same time, uh, the, the people of God were faithful and continued to stay true to, to, the, to the mission. However, we also saw last week that there's bumps, right? That there's, there are places within the church where things are ugly as well as beautiful. And so we saw the temptation last week to live for reputation rather than from reputation. And so we, we saw that in the story of Ananias and Sapphira and yet God is still moving. People are being added daily to the number of, of the church. And so we left off uh, in verse 16 where Peter is in the temple area and they're preaching Jesus and people are being restored and healed and their lives are being set right. The kingdom of God is being unveiled. And then we, we read what happens next. Verse 17. But uh, the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, this is the group of people who was primarily in power uh, in uh, Judaism in, in the day, and these are folks who don't believe in any, really like, uh, they don't believe in the spiritual realm, they don't believe in resurrection, they're, very, they're pragmatists, they're political pragmatists is what they are. Right? So they made friends with Rome so that they can maintain uh, a solid sense of power. And uh, so these folks are filled with jealousy, it says. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison, okay? So what the world sees in Christianity isn't good news. They see a threat, actually. Do you see that? Like there's a jealousy that God's doing something here. And so in order to protect my own sense of control and power, I'm going to treat this movement as if it's criminal, and so the apostles go into a public prison as if they're just regular old criminals, um, which, again, I, I think there's, there's plenty today um, that would ask the question, not really whether or not Christianity is true, but whether or not it's any good. Right? And so there is a general skepticism as well of the goodness of what we're about as Jesus followers, that actually there's a sense in which maybe that's not good for the world, it's actually bad for the world. Uh, and so what happens next is that they're arrested, they're put in prison, verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors. That's pretty cool. <laughs> like, that's not your regular night in prison, right? And yet, well, I don't know what your regular night in prison is like, <laughs> but I know this isn't it. 
And so an angel opens the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Let me just stop there. Um, I, I have to say, if I were in prison, I'm counting that as a rough night. Right? Like, I'm just, that's going in the books is, I had a hard night. Right? Like, I had to spend the night in prison with criminals as if I were one. Right? And, uh, well, I don't know about you, but when I have a rough day or a rough night, I, I want to just cash in all the comfort rewards I can as a reward. I had a hard day, so I deserve now some just chill time. Right? Leave me alone. I want to watch TV. Whatever. Like, I want comfort as a reward. I, I think I'd be pretty disappointed if I was set free from a prison and then told to go back and do the thing that got me in prison, right? I, was, I had hope for the angel that says, yeah, you've had a rough night. Go, um, just go home. <laughs> the angel says, so uh, you're going to go back to the temple and you're going to proclaim all the words of this life. And I love this too, this, this idea that, um, first of all, like Peter's and his comfort are not calling the shots. The mission of Jesus is actually calling the shots for his life at this point. And so uh, I think we just have to be careful with our own cultural uh, inclination to always orient towards comfort. I, I think when we expend ourselves, the, the inclination is to treat yourself, right? Like it's to go do, it's to, to get a reward, Right? And what's interesting is faithfulness in the life of following Jesus is not always, uh, that doesn't always lead to more comfort and reward. Sometimes it actually just leads to more challenge. Faithfulness to Jesus sometimes just moves downstream to more difficult, uh, more difficulty in following Jesus. And so we have to be aware of that. You're going to get really discouraged if you think every time you did something for God, you're going to get an ice cream cone, right? Because sometimes he says, okay, great, thanks. So now come with me into this work and this challenge. And so he opens the prison doors so that they can go out and continue the mission. And so we have to be aware of this reality that uh, God will continue to send us on his mission. Our comfort is not always his greatest priority. So he says, go out, and he says, speak to the people all the words of this life. I love that the Christian movement doesn't have a name yet. It doesn't. There's no label for what's happened. Like, nobody has been able to put a a phrase or a a label on this. And so the angel just says, speak all the words of this life, because it is a life, isn't it? It isn't just a principle. It isn't just a list of things to agree with. It is a life to be lived in union with Jesus through his spirit. On the other hand, it's not just something to be lived. It's also something to be spoken. There is content to the message. So he says, speak all the words, right? Not ju- so again, we have to be careful of the temptation to find Christianity and reduce it down to something to only merely believe. It is a life to be led. At the same time, we don't want to fall off the other side of the horse and see Christianity as just something to be lived and never something to be proclaimed. It is both. There are words and there is life, and they go together. And I love, too, that he says, 
uh, make sure you say all the words of this life. So when you're there and you're, you've gone back to that place that got you in trouble to begin with, with the authorities, don't hold back. Don't only say the things that will curry favor. Say the things that are true of what has happened in Jesus, right? Say all of the words. And so again, we also need to be encouraged not to hide aspects of our faith that feel culturally embarrassing at the moment. Because there are things that feel culturally embarrassing about Jesus, right? Like if we're really honest, there are. And we have to be careful not to hide it because if we believe that the gospel is good news, then let it stand and speak for itself because it's actually powerful. Paul says I'm, in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, I'm not embarrassed by the message of the cross, actually. And here's why. It's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. This message actually has potency to save. And some will believe and some won't believe. The angel says, go and speak all the words of this life. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, uh, they called together the council and all the senate of the people, the ruling people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. So at this point, the religious leaders are still convinced that the people they had just arrested are still in prison. They think, we can arrest the gospel by arresting the disciples. The truth is, you cannot arrest what God is moving. And so, uh, verse 22, when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, and so they returned and reported. How scary would this be? We think we didn't do our job, right? We found the prison securely locked. Okay, we thought we did our job. Uh, and the guards are still standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Verse 25, and when someone came to them and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. The cap then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest and questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to, bring, intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles, excuse me, answered, we must obey God rather than men. Well, hang on, we'll get to that in just a second. It's amazing. Let's just stop here and look at the response of the religious leaders. There's some fact in front of them, right? The fact of an empty prison, and it's amazing how they continue to persist in disbelief, right? I think this is amazing. You can actually persist in unbelief. Uh, but it is genuinely a closed-minded position because at this point, we're recognizing what unbelief looks like. Unbelief looks like uh, deciding ahead of time which assumptions you're going to rule out. Like you're, you're uh, ahead of time deciding, I'm going to rule out some things and simply say they cannot be true. There's something about the nature of unbelief here that is fascinating. That unbelief is, is not an acceptance of facts and the exclusion of like blind acceptance of something without facts. Actually, unbelief has to reject data. It actually has to say, that's not meaningful data. I'm going to stick with the data that I find meaningful. Right? Unbelief is actually a rejection of some facts. 
And faith is actually a leap from some facts. Because facts only get you so far. At some point, you have to make an interpretive leap, and that's what faith does. And all the religious leaders could do is to think of what they've said. They said, actually, hey, we told you to stop. So instead of seeing the miracle in front of them, they're still focused on what they want and what they've said. We told you to stop preaching. And it's amazing to me that they miss the inexplicable escape and the miraculous intervention of God because they so want to maintain their own status quo. Somehow they dismissed a reality of people freed from prison right, because they're too consumed with their own control. This is, this is part of the nature of unbelief. It's possible that we might miss the implications of Jesus if we decide ahead of time what can and cannot actually be true. There may be some places in your own life where you say, it can't really be true that God would actually redeem my life. Right? You decide ahead of time some things about your life and the potency of your past and decide ahead of time to exclude God's potential to truly forgive and restore you or other people. Right? Do, do you see how we have to be careful about the assumptions we bring to the gospel because the gospel is going to come and undo those things? Flip them upside down. Look at verse 29 with me. This is the response to Peter. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now let's just pause and think about the things that you would want to say in the midst of this kind of pressure situation. Right? Like you're putting his, his blood on us. Like I would be tempted to go, you know, it was always God's plan, so yeah, you know, he just used that. <laughs> like, I'd want to soften this as much as possible. Peter goes right at it. Well, we need to obey God, not you. And yeah, so you killed him and like just goes for it. Like he just, he is not ashamed of the truth. And so uh, everything that Peter says here is coming from a place of being yielded to God and faithful obedience. In fact, what I want to do is I want to frame the rest of this message around the two words that, that Peter repeats here. We must obey God rather than men, right? And then again at the end, the Spirit is a gift to those who, what? Obey God, right? Obedience is like the, the crux of this story. They're set free from a dangerous situation and called into a more dangerous situation. What do they do? They obey, right? They take the angel at his word and go with it, and they preach. And they stand before the people who are out to get them, and they... Speak the truth. And then again, we'll see at the end, they're, they're, they're beaten and they'll continue to obey. And so what's striking to me is Peter's boldness and his courage. Remember, this is the guy who said, I don't even know Jesus, right? In Jesus' trial. And now Peter's on trial. And he says, yeah, um, we know Jesus. Right? It's actually Jesus who's exalted as Savior and leader And so Peter responds, and he says, okay, we actually need to obey God rather than men. And then he specifies which God it is that he's obeying. Um, Because this is true today um, as as much as ever, I think the three letters, G-O-D, God, 
It's perhaps one of the most meaningless words you're going to ever encounter in English. It's essentially meaningless because it, it doesn't specify the content of which God, right? There's a lot of gods, right? And so um, oftentimes in a conversation with somebody who is um, telling me they don't believe in God, I'll say, yeah, there's, um, I'm curious, like, which God is it that you don't believe in, right? It's a good chance I disbelieve in that God too, right? Um, there are lots of gods to disbelieve in, right? And so uh, uh, what Peter does is he specifies, he fills in the content of which God it is that he's talking about. It is a very particular God, and he says, uh, it's the God of our fathers, i.e. the God of Israel, the creator God, who raised Jesus, so this is the God tied to the Old Testament, and it's the God tied to the Jesus narrative. It is um, the God we are, Jesus is referring to when he says the Father, right? And when he points ahead to the Spirit and he talks about himself as the Son. And so he says, the God of our fathers who raised Jesus, who you killed, okay, right? Again, very, very specific here. Um, this is a Jesus-shaped God. Verse 31 God exalted him, Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior. It's the God who exalts the crucified Jesus to share in his rule, who shares the divine identity. This is the God we're talking about. And so Jesus, the one who is exalted, shares divine identity and divine rule. And this Jesus who gives repentance. In other words, repentance is actually a gift. Your ability to turn from a life of selfishness to a life of obedience is actually a gift. Repentance is a gift. It's something that Jesus enables. He graces us with. Because grace is not just the overlooking of sin. Grace is empowerment for a new life. He gives repentance and he gives forgiveness which means this is the God who relates to you not on the basis of your performance, but the God who relates to you as a saint on the basis of Jesus' performance. And he says, we're witnesses. This is the God who acted in history. Uh, And so we're witnesses, and so is the Holy Spirit, who's given to those who obey him. Gives repentance, gives forgiveness, gives the Spirit. This is the God we're speaking of. It's that God. Uh, that I'm speaking on behalf of and whom I must obey rather than men. And the challenge is, I think, for a lot of us, um, if you've grown up at all in church, um, it, you've, this is one of the things you've probably inherited, and this is a good thing, um, is you're, you're readily willing to accept Jesus died to forgive my sins. Uh, he was raised from the dead, uh, accepts me on the basis of uh, his finished work, it's something I appropriate by faith, right? by believing. Right? But uh, to understand that there's anything left for us to do feels kind of alien, right? Like we'd say, it's all God, yes. Salvation is all God, but we don't always think about salvation as including us, that we have something to participate in. Um, good Bible-believing Christians don't often want to focus on anything we do, right? Because we don't want to make it seem like we earn our salvation, which we are emphatically saying we don't. And so that's absolutely fair, and I agree, except if we misunderstand the nature of faith and we misunderstand the nature of salvation, we'll get into trouble. Because the nature of faith always integrates action, Faith always moves us. Faith means taking God at his word and then ordering my life accordingly. 
And if we misunderstand the nature of salvation as rescue and liberation from sin and, uh, and, and union with Christ to be brought into his life so his life is now lived out in mine, right? This involves us. It involves our actions. And so this is why Paul speaks of working out your salvation in Philippians 2. Your salvation that is a gift by God, not by you, is something you work out the implications of in your life. Are you with me? And so we have to be careful here about this tension where if we say, it's, oh, it's all God, just let go and let God, nothing's going to happen because God's always working in and through humans. And he says, actually, when you yield to me in obedience, that's actually how I move and how I work. And so uh, this life-changing reality of the spirit that we're seeing in the book of Acts is God alive in you to move your will and to move you into action. So uh, that's why sin doesn't make sense anymore in my life. It actually feels like an anomaly every time I give in to sin in any way. It feels like, ah, it doesn't fit. That shouldn't be there. Why? Because I have a new identity as a new creature with the spirit alive in me. And so that's why obedience actually makes sense. When you actually obey Christ, it feels like you're more yourself, doesn't it? Like, that's actually who I really am. And so, because we have this new relationship by the Spirit, where the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father, right? We're connected familiarly to God the Father, uh, where we confess Jesus is Lord. The Spirit connects us that way to, to the Son, to where He's our true Master, and we live accordingly, right? And we order our life that way. And so, obedience actually has a central place in the Christian life. If you hear nothing else today, hear that. That obedience has a central place in the Christian life. It's the necessary byproduct of genuine faith. Are you with me? Not at all. All right, I'm scared. I'm going to go home and cry. No, okay, are you with me? Like genuine faith, right? Actually leads to obedience. Some of you, I'm sorry, if like I'm going too fast. Like we'll, we'll get there. Okay, so we'll come back to obedience in the end. One of the things that has helped me is Martin Luther, like the father of the Protestant Reformation, said this, right? Uh, that we are saved by faith alone, right? Yes, true. But not by a faith that remains alone, right? Because genuine faith always results in obedience. Perfect obedience? No. Imperfect but growing obedience. Yes, yes. Um, and so... Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them, right? Because there's a direct contradiction to their power and God's power. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a famous rabbi, uh, who is actually somebody who had mentored the apostle Paul, uh, is a teacher of the law, and he was held in honor by all the people he stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little. Send the guys out of the room. Let's talk. Let's talk. Uh, sorry, he's not like a New York Jewish lady. He's actually a rabbi. So anyway, and so where I lost my spot. Oh yeah, so let's put him out. Okay, and said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up some previous rebel, right? Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined them, and he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing, right? Okay. Uh, 
after him. Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. If this is just human effort, it's going to fail, he says. Uh, But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might uh, even be found to be opposing God. Uh, Is this good advice or bad advice? It's like mostly okay-ish advice, right? (laughs) Could something last that is not sanctioned by God? Yeah. (laughs) Like, we see it all over the place, right? So history is not always the best validator of truth. So it's, it's... And yet, hear his heart. He's saying, we don't want to be found to be opposing God. There's wisdom in this. And so they took his advice, and God graciously used him, probably to spare the apostles' lives at this point. So they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let him go. And so, I mean, that's one sentence. You get this picture of, well, they got a beating, and then they got sent out. Uh, The word here, everybody tends to think that this is a flogging, which would be the the 40 lashes minus one, right? So you're getting 13 to the front, 26 lashes to the back. These guys are not walking out the same way they came in, right? They're, they're marked for life at this point. They've been flogged with a whip, and this is not, this is not an easy exit, right? This is, they're changed, and they're marked, and it's, it's actually a brutalizing experience for them. And so uh, yet, at the same time, look at what the text tells us, verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing and they were count, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. And so what's amazing to me here is that these guys, they take something that was meant to be utterly shaming, the marks of a criminal, and they wear it as a badge of honor. They wear their suffering for Jesus as a badge of honor. They genuinely rejoice that they were counted worthy to share in the sufferings of their master, right? And guess what? This wasn't news to them. They knew that opposition would mean suffering. And so they, uh, this is something Jesus told them in John 15, verse 18. It says, don't be surprised, right? If the world hates you, know that it hated me first before it hated you. You're just following somebody the world hates. So you're going to get hated on, right? If you were of the world, if your character was the same character as the world system, uh, then it would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, right? I've called you out of it. Now you're like aliens, right? Even though you're resident, you're resident aliens, uh, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, that the wor- uh, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute, persecute you. If they kept my word, they, they will keep yours also. And so this, this suffering comes as a result of obedience. But wrapped up in it is joy. And here's, let me we've kind of walked through the text, noted a couple things. I want to just offer you four or five quick kind of reflections on what this text has to say to us about the dynamics of obedience. 
I think they're absolutely critical for us today. We have to be dialed into these in our own life. The first dynamic of obedience from this story, I think, is that obedience comes as a compulsion, which means that it's something like I intuitively must do. It, It doesn't come as a could do. You know, there are some things that are like, I could do it, I could give, leave it or keep it. Well, obedience comes for a Christian as actually compulsion. Like, I actually need to follow this through. Uh, Peter says we must obey God rather than men. Like, this is coming from the inside. Like, we just, we've encountered God. And we, we like, just need to obey him, not you, okay? And, and there's a sense that obedience just comes naturally, actually, because you're a new creature, Yes, there's the flesh, right? The part of you that still battles against the spirit. And yet the deepest, most truest reality of you for you in Christ is that obedience is actually the most natural thing. It's what will bring the most deep satisfaction for you. It may be delayed, but for the Christian, obedience is still eventual. It is a a compulsion. Romans 1, when Paul talks about his station as an apostle, he says, God actually called us as apostles to bring about the obedience of faith. Right? It's believing obedience that the gospel generates. It's not just merely belief, but it's the kind of belief that obeys. And so we're compelled to actually follow through and live out the implications. And what is it that compels us? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that it's the love of Christ that compels us. It's being loved so deeply, being transformed so fully by Christ and his mission and his reconciling work in our life that actually moves us and generates a new heart of affection for him that moves our will. And so uh, I don't know if you've ever had a moment in your life where you felt like, I think God's leading us this way. He's leading me this way. And it doesn't make sense on paper. Ever had that? You're like, ah, it doesn't make sense for us to do this, right? Uh, and even maybe go against, it might go against your desire. Like, I don't know that I even really want to do that, at least not on the surface, but I do want to want to right? I don't know if you've had that experience. Um, I'll tell you that church planting was not on my radar over a year ago. It wasn't. It wasn't on my want-to-do list. It wasn't even on my, like, I think I might do list. It was on a maybe, possibly, very, very potentially list. Um, When we felt like God was releasing us and calling us to a new thing out of Cedar Mill, we felt like, nah, this is there's a good, solid, sturdy church, but I feel restless, and I think there's a next thing. And church planning just wasn't on the radar for a lot of reasons, mostly through some spiritual direction and just processing. I think it was fear, but it, in the end, it was, it was something that became so glaringly obvious. I remember my wife and I walking through Cannon Beach. I had been kind of having this realization that, oh, shoot, I, we're planting a church I, I don't know that I can get off of this train. Like, I think it's moving, and it's God's, and so I'm going to just ride it. Um, but I remember Lauren and I talking, going like, I think this could have a lot of implications for our lives. <laughs> like, uh, are you ready? And we were on the same page, and we both felt like God's saying to do it. It didn't pencil right, and it even went against some of, like, our wisdom. Like, I don't know. Like, that's, there's a lot of risk involved. And who plants a church in Beaverton? I, I don't know. But God's, this is it. Like, God, like, we couldn't shake that God wanted us to do this. And so, here we are. <laughs> like, I, would ar- I would argue that nothing's been more fun and joyful, joy-filled for me than doing this with you. So, I, I would like to go back and 
time in my DeLorean and say, yeah, don't, just do it, right? Well, I, I did it, so anyway, I don't know what I'm talking about. I've been fuzzy in my brain all morning, so I'm sorry. I'll delete that on the podcast, but all right, so anyway, uh, it, obedience comes as a compulsion. The second thing is it comes with personal conviction. Listen to what the, the, the religious leaders say when they're like, hey, we, we told you not to talk about Jesus because uh, uh, you're intending to bring this man's blood upon us. When, when we are not obedient, we're trying to get our responsibility as far away from po- as possible, right? Like we're trying to push off responsibility, an agency. And that's what they're doing. They're trying, to, they're trying to get the blood of Jesus as far away from their hands as possible. They're trying to say, we're not, we have no conviction in this. They would probably say it was Jesus's fault. He said the stuff that would get him killed. Like, don't put that on us. Um, and, and yet, when we're obedient, it comes from this place of conviction, right? You actually see responsibility, that God's bestowing responsibility and agency on you. Um, the other week, not this last week, but the week before, um, we've been walking for about three or four years with this one mom, uh, and her, she's younger and single, and she's a rough go, and not a believer yet that we don't, we don't know. Uh, I would pray so if she's listening to the podcast, and I won't get into any of the details, but we knew she was about to experience some significant loss, more just traumatizing loss, uh, and my wife just felt so deeply convicted that she's the only friend, actually, like only friend to this person. Nobody else, literally no one else is there for her. They're there for some other things, but no one's there for her. And she felt like God has been continually saying, be her friend, just be her friend. And so it's coming from this place of compulsion, like I've got to go be with her through this and just sit with her. And it meant just rearranging our whole day, and it ended up killing a ton of stuff that we had planned, and, and it was this conviction, like it must be done. And that's the, se- the, the next thing, is that obedience comes with a cost. So it comes with conviction, a sense of I've got to, and compulsion. It also comes with a cost. And so when Peter speaks the truth, he knows it's going to lead to potentially his death and, and, and certainly suffering. Uh, I remember sitting in a dentist chair years ago being asked, why are you a pastor? And I softballed the answer. I was like, well, I really love people and working with people. Well, the answer was I've been touched by Jesus, right? Like Jesus has absolutely transformed my life. I was a selfish only child, and now I actually love serving people. And that's only because of the grace of Jesus. And you know, like something like that would have been more true. But I didn't want to pay the cost of social awkwardness. It just didn't. And I was like, can we just get my teeth clean and can I get out of here? Like, I don't want to talk about this right now, right? And so, but what I, what I saw in, in my wife was this, how we've got, I've got to just give up my day. And maybe, I don't know how, what this is going to cost us, but I've got to go be with her and love her through this. And it's that sense of, I'd rather obey Jesus than not pay a cost, right? Because your desire is greater for Jesus to be pleased and honored and for to be a faithful witness than it is to save yourself from some inconvenience. And one of the realities in our world is, as North American Christians, we're probably not going to get flogged for being a faithful witness. You'll experience inconvenience. You may career, experience career setbacks. You'll experience loss of reputation. You'll experience social awkwardness. Absolutely. No question about that. Um, and if you're faithful to serving Jesus, you're going to experience inconvenience. Right? It's, it's inconvenient 
to plant a church and like sweep up garbage out of high school. Like it's inconvenient to drive across town and care for your friend who's suffering and no other Christians are in their life. Absolutely. There's a cost to it. What I would say to us is that if we can't embrace the inconvenience of obedience, we'll never be able to sustain suffering for obedience. Do you know what I mean? So uh, let's embrace this and go, let's embrace the inconvenience of obedience. Because guess what? It also comes with joy. This is the next thing, that obedience comes with joy. They leave their flogging rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer for the name. You can suffer, by the way, for your own choices. Do you know what that's called? Consequences, right? Um, but when we suffer for the name, for the sake of bearing witness to Jesus, there's, there's a different level of what we experience. I think it's joy. And when my wife came home, she, she had to bear quite a lot. Like, she had to hear some stuff that was really, really gnarly and sit through some... It was, she was emotionally taxed, like nobody's business. But what happened was she was like, it was so amazing to get to be with her. Like, that was the perspective. Like, I got to be there. Jesus, let me be with her. She knows she's loved, right? She, she knows Jesus is tied to this. So what, what a beautiful thing it is to get to experience inconvenience so that somebody else can be loved for the sake of Christ. And so our, our experience of suffering and inconvenience does change when you're a Christian. You actually have joy in it because you're partnering with Jesus and what he's doing. And let me say this, this last thing. This last thing is that obedience brings inertia or momentum. Uh, I, I think if Peter had gone home when the, when the angel opened up the prison, if he had just said, I'm out, I'm not going back there, it got me in prison to begin with, I don't know that we would have day, daily house-to-house teaching of Christ in Jerusalem, right? Because if I shrink back in that moment, all of a sudden I'm closing a door, right? And I, I'm, I'm going to be less bold the next time around. And so Peter obeys, and it leads to more obedience, which I think leads to more obedience. And by the end of the chapter, Jesus is being taught house-to-house in light of suffering. It doesn't matter. We're going for it. And I want to say to us that if we say, I'll be obedient later, there is no promise that you're going to actually want to be obedient later if I don't want to be obedient now, right? If I say, I'd rather do what I want to do in this moment, what we're doing is we're creating a momentum that works against obedience. Because once we start obeying Jesus, it gets easier in some ways, even though sometimes it's more challenging. The momentum's there, right? And the more you obey Jesus and see his faithfulness in our obedience, you actually realize I can trust him when it's harder down the road because I've seen how he's met my needs and he's been with me through obedience before. And we've stepped out in obedience and it's, and it's worked, right? It makes it easier next time around. And so um, I want to lead us now to the, to the table. This is The message is leading to this place of saying we, we want to be an obedient people as a church. We want to be a people who are marked by the same kind of obedience that we see in Peter, one that's like we're compelled and we actually have a personal sense of conviction and we actually are willing to pay the cost and we're actually joyful in it and it creates a momentum where the Spirit's free to move among us. But guess what? Um, we're, We're not going to do that on our own. We're not going to do that just because we say we are. The only way we live 
in this stream of obedience is when we realize that we're united to the one who's already been obedient. Right? Then we, that we actually live in union with someone who, who has obeyed perfectly on our behalf. So when we, when we fail, he's there as our mediator, right? as our high priest, Hebrews says who says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and the scorn of the cross. Right? And the joy is to reconcile you and I to him, to unite us to him, that he was willing to obey all the way to death so that you and I might be reconciled and made new creatures who obey by the Spirit and his work in us. So we're going to go to the table and we're just going to celebrate this reality that we're united to the one who loves us and gave himself up for us in perfect obedience, who stands as our mediator, the one that the Father looks at his obedience when he looks at you. And you have that freedom today to live from that place of being perfectly accepted on the, on the basis of his obedience. Let's go to the table. Let's celebrate.